Match Chat is brought to you by Walters. Experience the UEFA Champions League final like never before at Walters Sports Bar. Join Walters this Saturday at 3 p.m. as Walters will broadcast the thrilling clash between Manchester City and Inter Milan with one of the largest TVs in D.C. measuring at over 200 inches. You'll be immersed in every exhilarating moment. Take your pick of seating options both inside and outside and enjoy the match with top-notch sound and unparalleled visuals. See you at Walters Sports Bar for an unforgettable Champions League final experience. Registrants will receive a free $5 beer wall card. Visit waltersdc.com slash events. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Swung on it, belted the gap in left center field, and that's going to get through and go to the wall. Rounding third, coming in to score is Lane Thomas, and coasting into second with a run-scoring double is Joey Manessis. His team-leading 31st run batted of the year on his 15th double of the season. And the Nationals are back in front here at the top of the sixth inning. It's now Washington 2 and Atlanta 1 as they cash in on the error that started the inning by the shortstop, Orlando Arcia. Two out of runner at third, and a swing of the ground ball toward the middle. Racing is Abrams, it's off his glove, and the Braves will take the lead. Rosario scores from third, and a ground ball up the middle by Orlando Arcia, off the glove of Abrams, ranging to his left, and Atlanta is in front for the first time tonight. It's the Braves three and the Nationals two. And welcome to Nats Chat for Saturday, June 10th, 2023, along with MadisonSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, I don't like saying this, but uh, the truth is the truth. The Atlanta Braves run the National League East. We have come to know this. So the Braves have won the division each of the last five seasons, uh, and the Braves are well on their way to a sixth consecutive NL East title. And uh, we on Friday night got a reminder of why. A 3-2 Nats loss at the Braves in game one of a three-game series, and in a game in which the Nats blew a 2-1 eighth-inning lead, the Nats now have lost five consecutive games, now have lost eight of the team's last 10 games, and now are 25-37. and The Braves now are a National League best 39-24. and This episode of the Nats Chat Podcast is brought to you by the Bethesda Big Train of the Cal Ripken Senior Collegiate Baseball League. Visit bigtrain.com forward slash tickets. Mark, we on Friday night had another very mixed outing 
by Josiah Gray. But we on Friday night had a very rough two-run Braves eight. Uh, that was something, seeing the game fall apart from an ad's perspective as that game ended up falling apart. Yeah, look, as you said there at the outset, the Braves have been the class of this division for quite a while now. They have owned the Nationals for several years. But this one bothered me more than I think a lot of the other ones. When they out-homer you, out-pitch you, out-play you across the board, it's hard to accept. But you just say, hey, you know what? They are at a different level right now. The Nationals are not there yet. You know what, though? In this one, the Nationals were right there. The Nationals should have won this game, and they did not. And the reason they didn't win it isn't because the Braves beat them. It's because the Nats beat themselves. Now, some of that's at the plate. There were some opportunities to tack on some runs, and they didn't do that. But especially in that just brutal bottom of the eighth, three defensive plays not made. Kyle Finnegan gets tagged with the loss. This one's not on him at all. Faced six batters, five grounders, and one pop-up. That was not on him. The sloppiness, the lack of execution. And there was other stuff early in the game that they weren't really executing on either, which we'll get into here. But that to me was a difference. This is a game they lost because they did not do the little things well at all. And if you're going to hang with a division winner, a division leader like the Braves are, you cannot afford to make any mistakes, let alone as many as they made in this game. It's funny, you watch a game and you have various feelings watching the game. I don't know how anyone could have watched this game and felt great about it at 2-1. Like, this just is not a team that you're going to beat 2-1 more often than not, you know? And so that the Nats were up 2-1 was great, but the Nats also were very fortunate to be up 2-1. And uh, I think what ended up happening is uh, reality sort of settled in. And, um, you know, the team that was the better team ended up as the victorious team. But the game was the bottom of the eighth. So first of all, Kyle Finnegan was the Nats pitcher for that bottom of the eighth. He made his first appearance since the previous Friday night. It's a funny deal with Kyle Finnegan this season. He either pitches a ton or he doesn't pitch at all. He had not pitched in a week, not since the 8-7 win over the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park the previous Friday night, June 2nd. So Finnegan, in this bottom of the eighth, ultimately allowed two runs, although only one of them was earned. He gave up a leadoff infield single by Sean Murphy on a well-struck grounder that went off Finnegan's right leg. Then came Finnegan giving up a single by Eddie Rosario through the right side of the infield on an 0-2 pitch. And then Lane Thomas botched the fielding of that single for a fielding error. Pitch, swinging the ground ball right side, chasing Garcia, dives, can't get it, base hit in the right field. Rounding second, Murphy trying for third, and the ball bobbled by Thomas at right, and in the second base goes Rosario, who never slowed down after Thomas did not come up with it cleanly in right field. Finnegan induced a one-out RBI ground out by Marcelo Zuna to tie the game at two, but that play was a, an adventure in and of itself because on the play was Dominic Smith, who is supposed to be a very good defensive first baseman, bobbling the ball as he was about to throw home. He instead got the out at first base, and then Finnegan gave up a two-out first pitch RBI infield single by Orlando Arcia up the middle and off the glove of shortstop C.J. Abrams for a 3-2 Braves lead. Now, the Abrams play was tough. I don't know if a play actually would have been made there, but certainly the Lane Thomas error loomed large, and the Dominic Smith miscue loomed large. Defense had been a strength for the Nats earlier this season. We've talked about this. The defense has dipped here lately. A lot of the focus has been on the bullpen, and justifiably so, but the Nats defense has fallen off, and boy, did it fall off in this two-run Braves eight. 
Yeah, absolutely. We've been seeing this for several weeks now, it moving in this direction. And think back to the game in Kansas City that Dom Smith let the ball roll right through his legs at first base in what was a critical moment of that game that I think they wound up losing as well. Yes, he's done a lot of good things for them in the field, but lately there's been some really notable gaffes by him. And that one in this game in the eighth inning, I mean, you could not draw up a better position for a first baseman to field a ball and throw to the plate to get the potential tying run out. That was a gift of a play and he couldn't secure it and he ends up having just to take the out at first base. So that was bad. Now, the only reason the Braves were even in position to score the tying run was because of the Lane Thomas error earlier. And think back a few innings prior to that, Lane charged the ball, made a great throw to third base. Bob and FP were commenting on that and how good that was and the great position he was in. That felt to me in the eighth like he was trying to position himself to do something great like that again. The problem is you got to get the ball before you can do anything else. Same thing with Dom and later on in the inning. Secure the ball first, then worry about the throw. So both of these were critical mistakes in that point. I agree the Abrams play would have been a nice play. The shame of it was one inning earlier, he did make a fantastic play to get them out of the seventh. And so you're thinking, oh, he's got some good vibes. That's the best play we've seen him make in a while, especially in a big moment. So that was equally frustrating. If not, you know, as routine of a play, it was frustrating that he got there but couldn't finish it off. You put that all together. And like I said, I don't put this one on Finnegan at all. I think the only hard hit ball was the comebacker that glanced off his leg. Everything else is a ground ball that either found a hole or wasn't fielded cleanly. That to me was really frustrating. And look, up 2-1, you're asking the bullpen to be perfect. (laughs) We know that's a big ask. The bullpen almost was perfect. They almost got through that thing, but too much to ask. And if you're going to ask them to be perfect, then you better have perfect defense. And they did not have anything close to that. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I would say with Finnegan is he's allowing balls to be put in play. I mean, ideally, one of your top two relievers is a guy who's making guys swing and miss. And Finnegan's not doing that enough this year. But yes, it's not like he got tattooed in that two-run eight. That's for sure. So the two guys who had the two big defensive screw-ups here, Lane Thomas and Dom Smith, it's hard to be that critical of Lane Thomas. He's having a really nice season. He's been a defensive plus from a standpoint of all of the outfield assists. I mean, he, in this game on Friday night, was once again an igniter in a first inning, one for four with a single and a stolen base. The single and the stolen base came in a one-run first. And there's actually some irony in Lane having an error later in the game because his stolen base prompted a throwing error by the Braves catcher, Sean Murphy, in that one-run Nats first. But Dominic Smith is a different conversation. We've talked about Dominic Smith. I mean, especially for a first baseman, the season that he is having in which he is hitting for like no power at all. He does have a pretty good on-base percentage. I've noted that, and I do think that he deserves credit for that. But if you're going to be an every-game first baseman, and I emphasize that everyday part because Dominic Smith is playing every day, okay? Davey Martinez is not resting Dominic Smith. Dominic Smith's slugging percentage for this season is at 301. If you're going to slug 301 as a first baseman, you better be, you know, Keith Hernandez circa 1986 as a defensive first baseman. And while Dom has done some good things defensively, like you've noted, like we've talked about, lately the defense has fallen off. And so if he's going to slug in the low 300s and he's not going to be great defensively at first base, (laughs) what are we doing here playing this guy every single game at first base? Yeah, it is becoming more of an issue, to be clear. Let's also point out that when it comes to his performance at the plate, especially with runners in scoring position, he is now 9 
for 53 with runners in scoring position, another 0 for 2 in this game. So you put that all together, and that does not scream every day first baseman. You could justify there for a while, well, the defense is so important that he should be out there. The defense has not been so good that that's worth sacrificing the bat. Now, I don't think there's a major move coming. I don't think all of a sudden he's out of a job or they're going to designate him for assignment here in early June. Are there ways to give him some days off? Yes, there are. You can play Joey Manessis at first. You can put both Corey Dickerson and Stone Garrett in the lineup. You can put Ildemaro Vargas in the lineup somewhere. There are ways to do this and give Smith a day off, and I'm not entirely sure why that hasn't happened yet. You've got to think at some point that has to be under consideration. It feels like he is just lost at the plate in particular. And I don't know if one translates to the other. You know, we always talk about guys taking their offensive struggles into the field or vice versa. He did a really good job of it most of the season to date of not having a correlation between offense and defense. But lately, like you said, it has not been as clean. And you do wonder if somewhere in the back of his mind, he's thinking to himself, man, I'm not helping this team out at the plate. I better do it with the glove. And that's only making things worse. That was a really, really tough play tonight. I don't mean tough in that it was a difficult play to make. I mean, it was tough in the mistake that he made in that moment that really cost the team. And you could see him thinking about it. You could see it all sort of falling apart in his mind as he was thinking about it. And you could see him quickly abandoning ship and trying to get the out at home and then going to getting the out at first base. It was a tough moment to watch, no doubt. Now, look, the Nats in this game scored two runs. The Nats in this game totaled a mere six hits. The Nats in this game worked a mere two walks. So ultimately, you lost this game because you didn't hit enough. And the Nats hitting has cooled off here lately. But no doubt, I mean, when you're up 2-1 in the eighth, in playing a game at the best team in the National League and the defensive mistakes cost you, those defensive mistakes are what you're going to end up harping on. There is irony, though, in the bad defense of the bottom of the eighth because, as Mark alluded to, the Nats in the bottom of the seventh got an outstanding defensive play, really one of the best defensive plays by any Nats player this season. The 3-2, Riley hits a ground ball, left side, Abrams with a diving stop, to his feet, throws to first, in time! Big time play, C.J. Abrams ranging to his left, getting up in plenty of time to throw out Austin Riley. So Coral Edwards Jr. on Friday night tossed a scoreless bottom of the seventh, thanks in large part to this great play, which was by shortstop C.J. Abrams. Runner on first, two outs, the Nats nursing a 2-1 lead. Abrams makes a great diving catch of a full count grounder by Austin Riley for a ground out for the third out. The grounder per StatCast had an exit velocity of 108 miles per hour and had an expected batting average of 500. Given the moment, this was really a sensational play by Abrams. Right. And that, to me, is the key. It's the circumstances of that moment late in a one-run game on the road against a team like that, the heart of their lineup coming up. That's a big-time play for him to make. And that's why I'm thinking to myself, okay, he's having a good night here. That's going to boost him. So to have him then not be able to make the play, admittedly a tough play, the following inning was tough to see. But you hope for more of that stuff. Remember, opening day against the Braves was the low point for C.J. Abrams, the three errors. He's worked hard since then to try to avoid that kind of stuff. He does make his errors still. I think what's actually been surprising to me is I feel like in the six weeks we saw him last year, there were more eye-opening 
defensive plays than maybe we've seen so far this year. This was one of them, and it was good to see that. But I feel like there were actually more of them, especially going up the middle last year. So I'm glad to see him make this one. Hopefully he remembers that one, feels some confidence because of it. He's playing in his hometown this weekend. That's a big deal for him. At the plate, still some stuff to be desired. He's not really producing the way that you would like him to at this point, but it was good to see him come through in the field in a big moment at that time to preserve a one-run lead. Yeah, Abrams on Friday night, 0 for 3 with a strikeout. Like I said, I mean, there just was not a lot happening for the Nats offensively in this game. Luis Garcia did have a multi-hit game. He had an RBI single and an infield single. Joey Manessis had an extra base hit. That was nice. He had an RBI double in an Nats one run sixth, but uh, otherwise just not much, you know, beyond the Manessis double and what happened with Lane Thomas there in that aforementioned one run first inning. Also from a bullpen perspective for the Nats on Friday night was Mason Thompson with another scoreless outing. So, hey, at least there's that. Mason has looked a little bit better here lately. Scoreless bottom of the six. Uh, he did give up back-to-back two-out singles, uh, one of which was an infield single. A lot of infield singles were given up by Nats relievers on Friday night, but Thompson also had back-to-back strikeouts of the Braves' numbers four and five batters, Sean Murphy and Eddie Rosario. So, you know, I know baby steps, right? But if Mason Thompson is getting himself right, that obviously would be a really good thing. Yeah. And I was thinking to myself at the time, if they go on to win this game, Mason Thompson's a big part of that. And that is a big deal because it had been really rough for him. But his last outing was also a good one. It goes back a few days on Wednesday, but that was a one, two, three inning for him in a loss. It was good to see him come through. We've been saying all along, you got to have somebody beyond the three that Davey goes to in close games late. And because Josiah Gray's pitch count was so high and they went to the bullpen in six, somebody was going to have to come through there. That, to me, was a really encouraging thing to see Mason Thompson do that against some good hitters, throwing strikes 14 of 20. You saw a good sharp break on the slider, better fastball command. That looked like Mason Thompson from April. Now, that's back-to-back. That's great. We need to see it again. We need to see it again after that before you declare anything But at least for the first time in a while, there's a little bit of an upward trend in how Thompson looks. Treat the whole family to a fun night of baseball with the Bethesda Big Train at Shirley Povich Field. Big Train Baseball is the perfect mix of small-town charm and big league talent right here in Bethesda's Cabin John Regional Park. The Big Train are excited to introduce the Kids Fun Zone this year, which includes moon bounces, games, and prizes for kids of all ages. Visit BigTrain.com forward slash tickets to reserve your seats for tonight's game and all other home games throughout June and July. Hey, are you a law firm partner stuck on an underperforming team while the rest of the competitors are spending big and winning big? Well, Unlike Mackenzie Gore and Kate Ruiz, you have options. You don't have to stay on your 60-win team. Nat Chat sponsor Mason Kalfis and his team specialize in placing partners and associates at medium-sized and large law firms in Washington, D.C. and across the country. Mason Kalfis has recruiters in six states and has placed lawyers in more than half of the 100 largest law firms in the United States. While you may be reading doom and gloom from the legal press, many practices are red hot antitrust, IP litigation, white collar litigation, finance and direct lending, and healthcare. Because you are not under a CBA or team control for six years, in fact, staying at a firm too long is often a recipe for being underpaid. Explore your options today with Mason Kalfas. 
Call Mason today at 202-486-3535. That number again, 202-486-3535. Are you looking for tickets to an upcoming event? DC might not have been on the Taylor Swift circuit, but still plenty of other events in the nation's capital, such as the Ed Sheeran concert in a few weeks in Landover. That's why you should download the GameTime app. Create an account and use code NATSCHAT for $20 off your first purchase. You get cheaper tickets, and it helps the podcast a bit. Sounds like a smooth 6-4-3 double play. Again, create an account and redeem the code NATSCHAT for $20 off. Terms apply. Download game time today. Last-minute tickets, lowest price, guaranteed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Swinging a ground ball, right side, fielded by the first baseman Olsen. He flips to Iglesias, covering in time, and the game is over. A 1-2-3 inning for Rizel Iglesias for his ninth save of the year. The Braves scored two runs in the bottom of the eighth inning and come from behind to beat the Nationals, and they win it by a one-run game here tonight, 3-2. All right, so if not for what happened in the eighth inning on Friday night, if not for the latest adventures with the bullpen and the Nats defense on Friday night, Josiah Gray would be the A topic for this 3-2 Nats loss at the Braves on Friday night. And this really is a matter of perspective here. On the one hand, Josiah Gray on Friday night facing the best team in the National League One run in five innings with six strikeouts, gave up just two hits. If I'd have told you all of those things going into the game, you would have said, hey, another good day for Josiah Gray. Maybe you don't love five innings, but overall, had he not loved those other aspects of the outing? Well, also with Josiah Gray on Friday night, him issuing four walks, him issuing a staggering four wild pitches, and him throwing just 56 strikes versus 40 balls over 96 pitches. The truth is, This was another mixed outing for Josiah Gray. He's in a weird place here these days. He's not giving up many runs. And so I guess at the end of the day, you have to say that's what matters the most, and it is. But the process for Gray remains far from ideal. So Gray in this game, a number of instances in which things could have been so much worse than they ended up being. He tossed a scoreless bottom of the first despite issuing back-to-back two-out walks of Austin Riley and Sean Murphy, and despite issuing a two-out wild pitch. But Gray, to his credit, struck out Eddie Rosario on three pitches, all swings and misses, with runners on second and third for the third out. 
Gray in the bottom of the second allowed the run that he allowed in this game, issued a leadoff walk of Ozzie Albies, issued two wild pitches, and uh, gave up a one-out RBI ground out by Orlando Arcia to tie the game at one. And Gray tossed a scoreless bottom of the fourth, despite giving up a weekly hit one-out opposite field single by Eddie Rosario to left center on an 0-2 pitch, despite issuing a two-out wild pitch, and despite issuing a two-out walk of Marcel Ozuna. But Gray, to his credit, then struck out Orlando Arcia with runners on first and second for the third out. There is so much to take in with this uh, Josiah Gray outing. What'd you make of what we saw from him? He was all over the place. (laughs) Fastballs up and away from lefties, breaking balls down and in, all of them in the dirt. It felt like Cabert Ruiz was bouncing around all over the place. Cabert did not help him a lot in this game. Let's acknowledge that. Four wild pitches didn't have to be the full four if Ruiz had been able to just knock a couple of those, keep a couple of them in front of him. Who would ever have imagined that Josiah Gray would match the club record for wild pitches, which had been set by the illustrious Daniel Cabrera way back when? (laughs) That is not something I would have expected, nor would I have expected that he would do that and still only allow one run on two hits in the start. But what this all told me was this, Josiah Gray is not getting hit hard. He's only getting beat because he's beating himself. Walks, wild pitches, giving away free bases. The defense, of course, was all part of this as well. He's not giving up solid contact. That's great. That's really good. But he's got to throw the ball somewhere near the strike zone and trust that he's going to get out. It's such a difference from last year where he was getting hit hard, but he's not. His problem right now is command. It's walks. It's high pitch counts. I thought maybe, given the circumstances and what the bullpen has been like, that at 96 pitches after five innings, Davey might let him go back out there for the sixth and push him to 105 or even maybe 110, depending on how it went. I understand why he didn't do that. I kind of was interested to see what would happen if he did let him go another inning, because at some point, he's going to have to be able to do that. If you're going to throw as many pitches as he is, you can't be satisfied with five innings out of him. He's got to go deeper in the game when he is, quote unquote, effective. But He was fortunate to get out of that with only the one run, but I also think it is evidence that his stuff has been good enough that he's not getting hit hard. He's just got to trust that he can throw it in the vicinity of the strike zone. Yeah, I think if it's possible to be both encouraged and discouraged about a young starting pitcher, that's kind of where we are with Josiah Gray. On the whole, you have to be encouraged by a season. I mean, his ERA is down to three over 13 starts. We all would have taken that and run with that going into this season, but the process continues to be bothersome. And I mean, you don't have to be like some baseball savant to understand that right now he's getting away with results that he probably shouldn't be getting away with. This reminds me in some ways, and I know some people are going to scream when I say this, but this reminds me a little bit of John Lester with the Nats a couple of years ago when, if you remember early on, he was actually getting pretty good results. He had an ERA in the threes, but we all said to ourselves, this isn't going to last. This can't last because he's putting a lot of guys on base. And sure enough, the ERA ended up skyrocketing into the fives. And then Mike Rizzo turned John Lester into Lane Thomas. But you know, Josiah Gray's at a much different point in his career than Lester was in 2021. I understand that. But you know, there are results and there is process. And they are two different things. And one thing doesn't necessarily reflect the other. And I think it's important to always differentiate between the result and the process. Josiah Gray has had a few of these starts here lately. 
He's in a stretch here in which he's not pitching great, but he is getting pretty good results. But you go back to the Nats 6-4 win over the Detroit Tigers at Nationals Park on May 21st. Gray in that game, one run in five innings. There's that same line, but he issued six walks. So you think about that now, twice in the span of, uh, what, less than a month, one run in five innings, once with six walks, another time with four walks and four wild pitches. That's strange. That's not normal. So yes, overall good results with the ERA of three. Yes, he's minimizing damage. Yes, like you said, he's not getting hit hard. All of those things are good things, but don't be seduced by just the bottom line results here. There's a process here that I think is worrisome and You do wonder if there is like a house of cards element to his season to where things could come crashing down hard because if he does start getting hit hard and as the Nats are facing better teams and as the weather warms up and maybe he does start to give up a few homers, you know, you wonder if these results could turn ugly. I hope not and maybe not, but I think that possibility does exist. I agree. And he is flirting with danger here and eventually you would think that's going to catch up with him. But I do think there's something to be said for the stuff that he's throwing by throwing fewer fastballs, and he did not have that many of them in this game. He only threw 14 four seam fastballs, 17 sinkers. He ended up throwing 36 sliders, 20 curveballs, nine cutters. By throwing fewer fastballs, that has, I think, allowed him to avoid the heart of the plate, the barrel of the bat. And I mean, I'm looking at this game at the exit velocities off him. The Braves only hit the ball four times off him harder than 95 miles an hour. One of them was a ground ball. The other three were flyouts that didn't travel deep enough to do any damage. So again, it's not like he's given up these drives to the warning track and like, well, they just missed a homer on him. So I think some of that is his ability to make the ball move and avoid the barrel of the bat. That's great. But you got to throw it close enough to the plate so that they have to swing at it. And there were way too many completely non-competitive pitches in this game. And that was such a problem for him last year. The hitters could tell out of his hand there was no reason to swing at it. All right. We have had some uh, Nats roster maneuverings uh, over the last few days uh, with uh, obviously the postponed game for the Nationals on Thursday afternoon. This is a roster maneuvering in the minors, but this was pretty big news on Friday. The Nats promoting third baseman Brady House from low A Fredericksburg to high A Wilmington. Brady House, one of many positive stories for the Nats in the minors so far this season. So House was taken by the Nats with the uh, number 11 pick in the 2021 MLB draft. It was taken out of a high school in Georgia. This season, just his age 20 season. We talked about House last season. His 2022 season for Fredericksburg ended in June of last year due to a back injury. But, you know, he even last season wasn't like killing it for Fredericksburg. 202 plate appearances, OPS of just 731. Well, for this season, he's made the transition from shortstop to third baseman. And he, this season for Fredericksburg, did very well. 158 plate appearances, OPS of 869. So now he's up to high A Wilmington. And, you know, I think it's always risky when you take a high school player in a first round of a draft. But the beauty of that, if it works out, is that the guy is so young. And so here you have Brady House, age 20 season. He's already at high A Wilmington. He could be playing in the majors by the time he's 22, maybe 21, like That is always what is so great about taking the high school player who does work out. But really good to see Brady House healthy and doing well and now being elevated in the Nats system. So the number one goal coming into this season for him and from the organization standpoint was prove that you're healthy 
go play every day after dealing with the back injury last year. Prove that now the next step was, okay, go actually have some success at the low A level. And he absolutely did that while also, by the way, transitioning to third base for the first time. Everything I've heard about that has been he's done very well there. So that's a great sign that that's been the case for him. And so it's nice to see him now move up. Now, if last year went the way it was supposed to, if he was healthy, if he was productive, he probably would have started this year in Wilmington already. So he's kind of caught up now to where he was supposed to be. That's fine. Like you said, he's young. And so you can afford to have that path be a little slower and have some bumps along the way. If he does have success the rest of this year at high A ball, that's really nice. Maybe now you see him at age 21 playing in double A next year. And as we know, you're in double A, you're not that far away. So we'll see how that all goes for him. But the fact he stayed healthy and the fact he's been productive and hitting for power, 500 slugging percentage is a great sign because that's what this guy is supposed to be. He is supposed to be big time power. And if he is going to be a third baseman, that'd be a very nice position to have that at. So let's see now at high A how it translates, maybe some struggles early on. But if he, by the end of the season, is doing anything like this and he makes it through the whole first full big league season or professional season healthy, that's a great sign for him and his development. I also noticed that you know after he was dropped from some of those top 100 rankings coming into the year, you're starting to hear his name crop back up and be included in that. So I think the rest of the baseball world is noticing him as well. Then the other item is this. The Nats on Thursday afternoon announced that they claimed a lefty reliever, Joe LaSorsa, off waivers from the Tampa Bay Rays. Now, the Nats optioned him to AAA Rochester, but it's not sounding like LaSorsa is going to be at Rochester for long. He has options. It's kind of a strange deal. So this is only his age 25 season. It's not like he was some wreck with the Rays, and that's why he ended up being made available. LaSorsa this season made his major league debut. He appeared in just two games. He allowed one run in four and a third innings, and then the Rays ended up designating him for assignment on June 3rd. So this is more like a roster crunch than it was, you know, LaSorsa just was awful and the Rays had to part ways with the guy. But, you know, he's not older. He's not older. He's, you know, mid-20s. He's unproven at the major league level, but he's pitched pretty well in the minors. And he's coming from an organization that we all know knows talent. So, you know, yes, the Rays parted with him, but he was part of the Rays. So, you know, there must have been something there worthwhile with him. And uh, given how desperate the Nats are for some kind of quality lefty reliever, I thought this was a smart pickup. And uh, like I said, it feels like LaSorsa could be pitching for the Nats in the majors sooner rather than later. Yeah, that's exactly the kind of move that they should be making. A left-handed reliever who looks like he's had some success becomes available. You jump on that and go for it and see if he does turn into something. We don't know if he will or not. Obviously, they didn't put him in the big leagues right away, but he has options so they can afford to wait and find out. He's not a hard thrower. I'm looking at it right now. He's a sinker slider guy, sinker in the high 80s and a slider in the 70s. So this is a crafty left-hander. That's fine. If he's effective, it works. It's something they have so sorely been lacking. I did have that little bit of pause like you suggested there earlier, if the Rays are cutting you loose, what do they know? Because they are not an organization that just drops guys who they think have a future. So that was a little bit of a head scratcher, but I do think it was a roster crunch more than anything. And if you're the Nationals, you absolutely take a flyer on him. I'm guessing, barring any kind of blow up at AAA, we will see him before long. They'll take a shot at him. Why not? Might as well. If it turns into something, that's fantastic. If it doesn't, no real harm done. So in the line to get 
into the major league club, in the line to get into the club, who's first in line right now? Is Sean Doolittle first in line or is Joe LaSorsa first in line, do you think? I think Doolittle will be provided everything continues to go well. And and he threw the other night, had a good bounce back performance at double A. So I still feel like we are, you know, a week away, if even that, for Sean Doolittle, barring any other struggles or health issues. If he ends up with, you know, seven or eight relief appearances and is bouncing back fine, the velocity is there. I don't think they'll wait to make that move to call him up. With La Sorsa, you can afford to buy some time let him get acclimated there at double A or at triple A, excuse me. You know, there's also nothing that prevents you from having two lefties in your bullpen at once, Al. I know it's a radical thought around here, but they're allowed to do that if they want to try that at some point. You know, we'll see how the rest of the bullpen shakes out here in the next week or two. But I would think we're going to see them both at some point. My guess is right now, just where he is in his rehab, I would think that Doolittle is not that far away. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast, Nats chat podcast at gmail.com, including if you would like to sponsor the show, we'd love to have you on board. Email Tim Shovers at natschatpodcast at gmail.com. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. Check out our new website, natschatpodcast.com. Also check out the website of the man responsible for the music of the Nats Chat Podcast, Tim Newmark. His site is at timnewmark.com. A thank you to our sponsor for this installment of the podcast, the Bethesda Big Train of the Cal Ripken Senior Collegiate Baseball League. Visit bigtrain.com forward slash tickets. So a while back, we asked you for your memories of October 2019, your memories of the Nationals run to the World Series championship. We got a really good one from Clark in Vienna. So we're going to leave you with that. Hope you enjoy that as much as uh, we enjoyed listening to it. And so for Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. Hey, Mark, Al, and the rest of the Nats Chat Podcast team. My name is Clark. I'm from Vienna, Virginia, and I've been a Nats fan since they moved to D.C. in 2006. Before I get into my favorite memory of the 2019 World Series run, I wanted to say how much I appreciate your guys' podcast. I'm serving in the military and currently stationed overseas, so because of the time difference, it's really tough for me to watch most games. I love being able to listen to the podcast each day after the game. It helps me get a sense of what's actually going on and particularly enjoy the radio snippets of all the key moments. A huge shout out to you guys and the production team that make that possible. As for 2019, my favorite memory actually came in what is now the largely forgotten National League Championship Series. We often think of Soto's hit in the wildcard game or Kendrick's heroics against the Dodgers. But when it comes to the Nationals' run to the World Series, few individual performances were better and more clutch than Annabelle Sanchez's start in Game 1 of the NLCS. The Nationals were coming off a physically and emotionally exhausting series, an awesome series, but an exhausting one, and playing a very good team and a franchise that I don't need to remind anyone has tormented us in the postseason in the past. I thought the series as a whole, but the first game in particular had the potential to be huge letdowns. I was in college at the time, and the NLCS was in the middle of midterms because of course it was, and I was watching the game in my buddy's dorm room. I can still remember the feeling of hope grow in me as each bottom of the inning came and went. Sanchez just dominated that lineup, and he had to because the offense did actually have a bit of a letdown but Annabelle was just not going to let us lose that game. Obviously, for me, the best moment was Zimmerman's incredible catch in the eighth inning to, at the time, keep the no-hitter alive. I actually had a noise complaint against me when it happened because almost everyone else was trying to study, but it was worth it. Sanchez completely set the tone for that series in what was undoubtedly his best performance of the year and possibly his career. 
He couldn't have picked a better time to do it, and the rest was history. Thanks so much for letting me relive that 2019 run. It's moments like that that make years like this worth it. I can't wait to see who the next heroes for the Washington Nationals will be. And until then, I'll keep listening to Nats Chat. Thanks, guys. Hit by a pinch was a Rosarena, the pinch hitter. Here's a swing and a line drive. Caught by a diving Ryan Zimmerman to his right. What a play by Zimmerman leaving his feet. A headlong diving backhanded catch by 35-year-old Ryan Zimmerman. One away in the bottom of the eighth inning.